Hi, Safina. How are you? Good, good, good. How are you? I like, I like your charades. It's very nice, Safina. Yeah, I'm like, can you hear me? <laughs> Did the microphone not work, Safina? No, no, it is, it is, it is working. I just, uh, out of habit, I put these on. If you want, I, I, I will try and hang on one second. Can you hear me better now? See, now I can show my mic to show off. See. My mic's bigger than of your course, mic. Of course, you're a bigger celebrity. Come on, it has to be that way. No, but is this okay now? I think you have to come close to it or move it close to you, yeah. I think they will be need a capacitor. Is this better now? Much better. In this episode, I speak to my friend Safina Hussein, who's the founder of Educate Girls, an NGO that works to support girls' education. I've known Safina since 2009 and have always been amazed by her commitment to the sector and her desire to try new things. She's been a pioneer in many ways, including being the first NGO to introduce development impact bonds in India. Educate Girls has been funded by LGTVP, Safina is a Skull Fellow, and her NGO has also received funding from Audacious and McKinsey Scott. This episode was recorded a few months ago during the devastating second COVID wave that hit India. It's, it is again really nice to see you. Thank you so much for taking out time. And so I guess with that, Sophie and I, wanted to start where what I remember at least and, and if I you know don't remember anything properly please correct me but it was around 2009 when Dasra worked quite closely with the Godrich family to highlight issues reflected on girls education in India and so we said let's do a research report on this topic let's talk about different organizations across india that are doing fantastic work and and through this let's really create some sort of platform where multiple funders can come together and support an organization to build their capacities to grow and scale i was going through uh, the girl power report and and just reading some of the stats on here so 50 schools reaching 6360 girls and 5320 boys the goal is to expand into 500 schools and under management team and this is all on the report so i'm not making this up impressive executive director with 70 field staff <laughs> And, and so I think that's how we actually uh, got to know you first. And, and so if you can talk a little bit about those experiences and what led you to, you know, create this organization, what was the experience like in, in meeting with us and take us back, I guess, to 2007, 8 and 9, that, that would be fantastic. I'm really happy uh, that we're sort of going down memory lane because that is amazing. We met when we had just about started out. Our ambition was to get into 500 schools. And I do remember this one conversation. I said, you know what, Deval, after that, 5,000 schools. And you said, Safina, say this quietly. Like sometimes if you want to tell yourself in the bathroom, that's okay. But don't come out and say these things in public because people will think you're insane. You know, do it slowly. I remember the ambition was all, always there. And today, I mean, you know, you're quoting a report that says that we were 70 staff. Today, we are... 2,200 full-time employees. We're working across 18,000 villages, three states, you know, serving millions of children daily. 
And uh, what a spectacular journey it's been. And I'm just so happy. I couldn't have asked for a better partner to start that journey. I think if you can take us back to where, where were you as an organization? What made you even start this entity? Uh, you had also spent some time in the US and, and working in global development. So what sort of brought you to create this organization? And what gave you the, I guess, confidence to go from 50 to 500 to 5,000 in a short amount of time? You know, I have to say, when you're in the moment, you make a lot of decisions. I am going to be relaying it with the benefit of hindsight. So I'm going to be packaging it a little bit. And obviously, uh, when we started, and you know this as, as well as anybody, I mean, everything was very foggy. It was like we were walking through this fog with this idea of where the destination point is going to be. But I think girls' education is really my mission uh, and my passion and, and, you know, sort of rules my life in some ways is really because education had such a massive transformative impact on my own life. I grew up in, in a lot of poverty, in a lot of violence, and a lot of abuse. You know, it was through help of others that I ended up eventually going to London School of Economics and uh, being the first person in my family to go overseas for an education. And it totally transformed my life. It completely changed my life. I ended up living in London for five years and then from there moving to the Bay Area, getting my first job there. And then I started volunteering at an NGO and just felt like this is it. This is what I really want to do. But I spent about 10 years in the Bay Area doing health-related work, working in Ecuador, Mexico, Bolivia, South Africa. Came back to India in 2004, 2005. And really, that coming back to India was this big sort of realization, saying, look where my journey took me. And it took me only because of my education. Otherwise, I was this girl, you know, who grew up in a one-room janta flat. We didn't even have a, you know, a kitchen. We cooked in the corridor. My whole childhood breakfast was a cup of tea and two slices of bread. And that same girl, to have gone and seen the world and, and worked so many places and with so many communities, it was really like, you know, what else? It only had to be girls' education. So that, that really was, um, you know, why um, we, we spent close to 15 years working on this issue. And we'll continue to do so. And, and tell us a little bit about the model itself, when it started, what has changed, if anything, since then. But uh, while girl education was something, like you just said, had a, a huge impact clearly on your life, what was the model about and what was different and similar to other organizations at the time? in terms of their interventions in the education space or even in the gender space? When I first started the organization, I think I, I looked around. And at that time, you know, we are speaking about almost 15 odd years ago. What I saw was two very distinct pieces. One was that there were a lot of education NGOs. You know, you had Pratham and you had so many very large scale, established, strong education NGOs. And then you had a lot of very large and, again, established, mature children's NGOs. You had CRY, you had... You know. uh, so those were the two spaces that, that were occupied. What I did see was a gap where there wasn't that much around scales, particularly for girls' education. And I really felt that the gender lens was essential to this work. And, and that was really, you know, saying, okay, can we build a model? And I saw sort of a gap there in terms of the sector and where it was at that time, that there was room perhaps for a, a scalable model of just focused on girls. So girls' education and a very, very strong gender lens. So the model hasn't really changed. It's exactly the same as from the day it started because 
we still first and foremost do identification of out of school girls. We basically go door to door and we find every single girl that's out of school. Once we find them, we work with families, communities, neighborhoods to convince them to enroll those girls back into government schools, whichever is the closest school available. And then we work in the school to make sure that girls are staying, learning, that there's you know, toilets for girls, that the infrastructure is girl friendly, um, making sure that the classroom and, you know. So, yeah, so enrollment, retention, learning of girls is really what we focus on. And now we have also a program around secondary. So really making sure that girls are passing the 10th and 12th grade. So focusing on that, uh, on the adolescent girls. And I remember back then, one of the, through your door-to-door studies, you all realized that while from afar, it seemed that economics was the main reason why girls were not sent to school, you found some communities and parents who were economically weaker than their counterparts who would send their girls to school and others that wouldn't. And and so how did you sort of unpack this, I guess, and what were some of the interventions or strategies that you used to encourage more of the girls to come to school when you said, you know, 10, 15, 20% maybe not, may not be attending as compared to, to their boy counterparts? You know, it took us a few years and, and right now, I mean, we, we understand it as the whole issue of girls' education. The root causes lie in sort of three Ps that I call it. There's poverty, there's patriarchy, and there's policy. So some elements are due to a policy gap. Let's put those aside right now. The second, the two root causes are the two Ps of poverty and patriarchy. So in some areas, it is poverty that keeps the girls from school. In others, it is patriarchal mindset. Where you have an explosion of out-of-school girls, so where you have very high numbers of out-of-school girls, are where those two Ps intersect. And this is because of all of this data that we've been looking at, we're sort of finding that these patterns are emerging on very large scales. And for that, we actually use an army of community volunteers called Team Balika. Balika just means the girl child, so the team that we create, a grassroots level team for the girl child to actually do that. And they know their village really well. They know the local networks. They can leverage all of that to be able to deliver the right message to the right person at the right time. They are both men and women, usually young people between the ages of 18 to 25. They are some of the most educated in their own villages. So these are people who may have done their 12th grade. They might be doing their undergrad through open school or distance learning. And they join us to to further the mission. And because they're educated, they really understand the value of an education. And can you give us some examples without mentioning names of either parents or even girls who had not attended school or parents were completely against it, who over time decided that this was the right path. And like you said, given that it's been almost 15 years since you've been working on this particular project, what are some of those, I guess, success stories that, that you've achieved? Yeah. Oh, there's so many. But I'll tell you one. This is really funny. One of our team members, uh, Vijay Lakshmi, she's been with us almost since the beginning. And she was walking down in, in Falna. I think they were, you visited yes, Falna. Yes, I remember. In, in Rajasthan. And this young woman stopped her and she said, uh, remember me? And she was like, uh, no, sorry. I'm really sorry. I have no idea who you are. She said, are, I'm Papita. You enrolled me in school in fourth grade? And, and obviously, you know, Vijay Lakshmi had worked with so many children that there was no way she was, she was recognizing. And of course, the child had grown so much. And it was just incredible that the child remembered Vijay Lakshmi and then told her that she was now a Sarpanch of a neighboring village. So she had not only finished her schooling, 
you know, she had then stood for panchayat elections and now was a sarpanch. And then she came back and found us and, and spoke at one of our Foundation Day events. And it was just such an incredibly emotional moment to see one of your children is coming back as a chief guest at one of your district events and, and encouraging other girls to go to school and, and really encouraging other parents to do the same. But yeah, so there are lots of stories like that. Girls who've now become policemen, who've joined, you know, um, Sarpanch, Wartpanch. It's, it's unbelievable. And, and what, are, what are some of the maybe transformation moments that you've had in this journey? And I'm sure there have been multiple, but what are some of those aha moments that, that you've had that have either affected the program or even you personally? Yeah, I think I'm going to focus on maybe some of the newer sort of aha moments that we've had. I think the one that uh, just like about two years ago when we started to look at our data more closely, and we'd always heard this, like our team would always say, oh, that area, that's a hotspot. You know? So they always intuitively knew that there were some geographies where you would have large numbers of out-of-school girls versus others. So even, uh, you know, for example, in, in Jabua, we would, we would have gone door to door in the entire district, but we would realize that there are about 300 odd villages out of, let's say seven, 800 villages that have the highest concentration of out of school girls. You know, and we would, we would go into a district and we would cover every single village. And then suddenly after we went door to door and we would did this whole survey, we'd realize that there was a pocket which would be really tough to deal with. And I think a few years ago, we started to, use predictive analytics and a little bit of machine learning to think, where does this get us? How, what can we do? And so we found a partner with the ID Insight and they started to build a predictive sort of model for us. And what we learned was really interesting. What ID Insight came back and said to us was that if by using all this uh, sort of these algorithms and using the data we already had from years and years of door-to-door -door surveys, layering that onto public data, uh, the insight they came up with was that 5% of villages in India have up to 40% of the out-of-school girls. Wow, that's pretty tremendous, especially with government policies, some of them national, not localized. And so they said, if you used this level of precision targeting, you could actually impact two to three times the number of out-of-school girls, you know, versus what you're doing now. Right now, you're casting this net so wide and then you're figuring out where the you know these hotspots are. But what if we had a way to predict them for you? And then you only expand into those hardest to reach geography. And I think that was a really, really, really big aha moment for us, that there's so much to be gained from putting that lens of precision targeting. And where it lands you is with the most vulnerable. And so what it also does is that it's taking this NGO, it's taking all of our donors, partners, everybody, into the neediest of areas in this country. And now we're saying that if we can predict the number of, the, you know, those villages in the country that could have the highest number of out-of-school girls, can we build a predictive analytics model for predicting child marriage or school dropouts? You know, so there's so much that we could do with this data and build this to, to start predicting for, for other things and, and make our preventive work a lot stronger. also one of the earlier groups, given the scale that you were looking at 
in you know 2011 12 13 to also adopt technology like you were saying right it was paper registers but then you reached a certain point where it was actually more costly to do paper registers and that probably was sometime between the 500 to 5000 schools and now you're using you know cutting edge technology and doing things that i don't even understand like machine learning and artificial intelligence and all those other really nice words Safina. thank you for sharing them with me but do, do you see sort of the sector also now, um, I guess, leveraging technology more than they have before? Or do you feel this is a, an anomaly for, for educate girls? No, I, I definitely, I see it everywhere. I think whether the education NGOs are now using WhatsApp, EdTech has really grown and matured since we first started. For us, it's a little bit different in the sense that we use technology all the way as the back end of the scaffolding to be able to enable scale and impact. But at the front end, unfortunately, we don't use that much technology because like, for example, with our children, our children, there is no penetration of smartphones, you know, with the gender digital divide, even if there was a phone, it's not going to be given to the, to the girl in the house, right? So our front facing activities are still completely people driven versus the back end is where the heavy data and technology backbone is being set up. While a lot of the other nonprofits, you'll see the front end being sort of much more digital, perhaps, than what we do. But again, it's because we work in those rural, remote and tribal areas. It's because we work with absolutely the most vulnerable populations. Most of the children in my program are, you know, children of daily wage earners, you know, people who are just surviving on Manrega and things like that. So which is why our front end is all is all still completely people driven. And even when we started Dasra in 1999, there was this view back then, you bring internet to the villages and everything will be solved. Uh, and a good friend of both of ours, Anshu from Gunj, also talks about roti.com. <laughs> like this whole dot-com nonsense is ridiculous if you don't have food in your belly. That's more critical or even clothes on your back. And I think differentiating again where technology can play a role and where it cannot, I think is important. But I want to talk a little bit about as you have grown and scaled, Many people see technology and other items, including the cost of management, as an admin expense. And I know there is now some more movements. I mean, Darren Walker, a few years ago when he took over Ford Foundation, talked about the need to give far more flexible funding for the organization to do what is required. For example, in this case, I guess that artificial learning and that expenditure clearly is allowing you to be far more focused. And so there's a multiplier effect versus casting your net wide. But, but donors many times think, oh, but that's an admin expense and that should be limited to X percentage or only, or only this amount. If you could talk a little bit about you know, the donor mindset when it comes to funding groups, and I know you were the first group in India to even you know, create the development impact bonds. And, and some of that was, I think, to combat this mindset this outcome, you know, results-driven strategy, that, that would be helpful for the listeners to understand. Yeah, it is, it is a big problem because I think very few donors, uh, and I think Dasra kind of spoiled us with your uh, giving circle by giving three uh, unrestricted money just tied to, you know, scale and results rather than activity. So we were spoiled right from the beginning. But, but there is this, it is a huge struggle when, you know, and also because the power dynamic is so not in favor of the NGO. And there's this constant push to do something innovative. There's this constant push to uh, do something new. There's this constant push to do something very cost effective. 
you know, which are really kind of false narratives in some way or form. Because A, we need, you know, sort of evidence-based things to go to much, much, much larger scale versus this constant, you know, if I had to compare, you know, yours and my children versus one of the children we work with, I would say, you know, a hundred dollar investment for our child is enough, but for a poor child, you should be investing a thousand dollars because their needs are so extreme because they don't have educated parents, because they don't have that vocabulary, because they don't have so many things versus we flip it in the development sector and say, make that the poorest, the hungriest child, let's be cost effective, you know, when we're serving them versus anything else. And I think these are all like really false narratives. This parachuting in, parachuting out of a one-year projects, which we self-congratulate ourselves on being highly innovative. And I think this is really where, where the problem uh, is. And also a lot of this investment is based on some activity, you know, because it was so innovative. It had to be this innovative activity of like, you know, I don't know swimming classes for baby monkeys or something. It was like so innovative and we did it for a year. It was fantastic, you know, but instead, and I think that the bond, the development impact bond, really the genesis of it was, and everybody thinks it was a fundraising instrument, but actually the reason behind it was saying, how do we become results-based? You know, pay me for the result. Don't get so hooked on and then micromanage the living daylights out of the poor NGO regarding your activities. And the bond was essentially, the way I saw it was, okay, between the donor and, and the grantee, let's decide what is the success we want to see. What is the money you'll give me? Then give me the money and get out of the way because, you know, come and see if the result is achieved or not and then, and then pay the funds. But it was really, and, and the dip was a three-year small transaction, probably one of the smallest bonds, you know, ever. And yet it was so successful, not in terms of, you know, all the financials or in terms of the results that we saw, but in terms of what it taught us as an organization, you know, and what it made really bare and explicit to us, what we had been sort of saying, you have to give long-term flexible funding, which is tied to results versus tied to activities you know and that's what the bond really says to you saying a child's education cannot happen in a year you have to give i mean that bond was three years ideally i would say make them 10 years because education for a child is a 10-year business right why are you getting in and getting out in a in a year you're not doing that child any favors but at least this particular day we were able to do for three years it was patient money it was completely unrestricted it was just tied to x number of children um, you know, being able to read and write or X number of girls coming back into school who had previously been out of school. And what it also showed us was, which we always knew, but now there was a third party evaluator validating these things. You know, it took us three years, but we brought back 92% of all out of school girls back into school. Three years, but it was, you know, that's how long it takes. The first year you will get all the young ones in and second and third year, the older girls, the ones whose circumstances are even more difficult, but it is possible. It is possible to bring everybody back into school. The second I think it showed that learning outcomes is not a one-year cycle, right? First year, we achieved about 25% of our target. Second year, we hit around 50%. And it was by the third year that we hit 160% of our goals. And that's because even with any child, there's a tipping point. You're getting your first generation learner, you're getting your most marginalized child, and you're expecting that I should just see all the results in year one. If you can just help us understand, what was the amount of the DIB back then? And how did, what was that as a percentage of your annual budget approximately? 
it was about, I think, less than 5% of our budget, three, 4% of our budget at that time. For us, the service delivery cost was around, um, I would say about $270,000, $300,000 for the three years. And it impacted about uh, 7,000 children. That's helpful. So, so this was four to five percent of your budget. This was a hundred thousand dollars a year, approximately. Yet it created and gained significant media attention. And so, with that and the success clearly of your team, you know, like you said, uh, overachieving on targets by one hundred and sixty percent. And and what years were this again, approximately? 2012 to 2015. And so given everything that was just amazing from it, did that mean in 2015, Safina, you or your team or your board was like, let's get 50% of our organization funded by dibs now because it is the way to go? No, actually what it, uh, again, I think we're missing the point here. I think the point of the dib was not to do more dibs. The point of it is what it was trying to show was that give patient, flexible, capital tied to results. Because dibs are very complex instruments. And again, the dib, because it it really pushed us into data-driven decision-making. If you want to deliver results, you will actually have to look at your data much, much, much more carefully. You know, currently, I think one of the problems of the NGO sector is that because of this whole power dynamic with money, your data comes in, you collate it, and you, you, you push it up to your donor in, in the form of a report. In the div, actually, it pushes you, when you're delivering to results, it pushes you to use data in service of your frontline staff. So the first thing we did in the div was we built dashboards for our frontline staff because they were like, we can't deliver you results. If I don't know what my data looks like, I don't know how much progress is really happening. I have like these 10 or 15 villages I'm, I'm in charge of. I need data. So instead of the data moving upwards and then into some kind of donor report, we didn't share anything with the donor. We actually started to use data in service of our frontline staff, in service of day-to-day decision-making. And really, so at the end of the day, when we started to consume our data much more differently than we had before, is when we built this insight saying, Looking at all of this data, 5% of the villagers have 40% of the out-of-school girls. And we built our five-year plan saying, over the next five years, let's saturate these uh, villages, these 35,000 villages, and, and use the DIB model, which is an evidence-based model here. And we took that to Audacious, and then we became the first organization in Asia to become an Audacious project. But that money uh, that the Audacious has committed towards this five-year plan is unrestricted and it's a five-year commitment. So essentially we, I I don't know if I'm making sense, but the the whole idea of the div was that you use that as a proof of concept so that you can unlock larger strategic collaborative funding, which is mirroring the same principles of the div investment, which is again, long-term patient flexible capital and tied to results. So this one, our goal is 1.5 million out of school girls to be brought back into school and making sure that they're learning. You're making complete sense to me, at least. And I, and I say this because I've been on stage in global conferences with individuals stating on the same stage on how the financial principles of the development impact bond that was given to educate girls and the fact that it was returnable capital from one donor in one European country to another donor in another European country, that is what made Educate 
girls achieve where that it is achieved. And on that panel, I had to, on my turn, <laughs> refute that claim <laughs> and, and say it was actually the hard work of educate girls and their team, your team, that has done the hard work and the heavy lifting. It had little to do with the one donor in, in, in one European country giving another donor in another European country money. But that caused quite a bit of controversy in Singapore when I said this, because people said, no, but dibs are the reasons that the world will be saved. And I think, Devil, this is, this is such an important point, because I think, again, the reason, we could have done it as a straightforward payment by results transaction, right? So then we don't have all this complication. The reason we went for this complicated structure of converting it into a bond was, again, to be a proof of concept for tomorrow a government, if it grows into a social impact bond, then it brings new money to the table. So dibs are not an end you know, in themselves. It was supposed to be, ideally, it's a baby dip because it had never been done. I mean, you have to recognize also in 2012, people A, thought this was an insane idea anyway. Secondly, they were like, government will never do it. And, and eventually we wanted, you know, if the dip converted into a social impact bond, then you could really unleash a huge multiplier effect for the nonprofit sector and about pushing a lot of performance-based NGOs, right? Which were looking at results rather than doing these input-based projects. There had never been a template that was created. And people basically at that time said, you can't do this outside of US and Europe because places like India are so data poor. You can't trust their data. Which is why we also did an RCT to say you can't trust the data. It isn't that it can't be done in India and it can't be done in a you know, South Asian country or wherever else. So I think the ideas behind it, people are forgetting. So I'm so glad you made that point at the conference because I think it's really important to remind people. I get a lot of phone calls from NGO leaders saying, we want to do a dip because we need to fundraise. And I'm like, please put the phone down. The worst reason to think of a dip, there are easier ways to raise money. It's, it's a real problem, unfortunately. In fact, just last week, we were contacted by a journalist. And for the listeners, I guess, that don't know, India has just had a ridiculously large and bad wave of COVID. And it has knocked out people right, left, and center. Uh, Safina, as you and I were speaking about earlier, you know, you and your family, unfortunately, were infected. And that, you know, made us delay this particular call. I know you've had staff members and community members who passed away because of this. I mean, we've had board members who've lost both sets of parents, colleagues who've lost loved ones, uh, you know, many times three or four in one week. It's just been absolutely ridiculous. And given that COVID is still very much here to stay in our country, this one journalist contacted us and said, what is the role of new financial instruments to help people get out of COVID? And I said, look, this is the problem with the development sector to a certain extent, and definitely the for-profit sector and being in investment banking at one point in time for a very small part of my life. For whatever reason, we focus on the financial instrument. And that takes all the hype, that takes all of the <laughs> publicity, and it's like that is going to save the world. And we've seen whether it's, you know, asset-backed securities with mortgage crisis or, or any of the bubbles that we've seen, you know, in the financial markets, at least 
the second you start thinking financial instruments is going to solve something, you're actually taking your eye off of the entrepreneur and the teams and, and what really needs to get done. And, and so in this particular case, I guess the journalist was like, which financial instruments could be used? And I made it pretty clear that if we start going down that path, especially media, because people pick up on media, you will probably cannibalize on significant amount of grant free funding that is required to feed babies right now, to feed families, to provide, even if it's a virtual learning, which I'm assuming uh, with Educate Girls, a lot of your communities have not been to school for at least a year and probably won't be anytime soon. And so there's, there's, I guess, a large development gap which needs free capital. And so if you can talk a little bit about what you're seeing with COVID now, how this has already affected your communities that you serve and your team. And I guess, you know, has that slipped us as a country back into 2010, 11 or 12 indicators in terms of education or health or livelihoods? And where, honestly, can pure play grant funding, which is still required, play a role in uplifting these individuals, not just for the next month, but ideally for the next few years till we get back on track? Yeah, uh, I think I think COVID has really kind of set us back in terms of the development agenda. I'll cover two things. One, just I think for Educate Girls, how we've kind of been impacted and how we've pivoted or what we're doing about it. And the second, I want to really focus on the children and how and what I'm seeing happen. I think COVID, I've never seen anything like this in my life, right? In terms of how it has impacted the organization all the way across. Last year, we lost about 10, 15% of our funding, specifically a lot of the CSR donors because they diverted funds towards CM Cares and, and CM Cares. We saw severe lockdowns. We had to suddenly make all our, you know, plan A to plan B to plan C to plan D to plan E. We had to very quickly learn to decentralize in a way that we hadn't ever done before. So making sort of independent units out of the organization and each can move at its own pace. You know, whoever's in the green zone does this and whoever's in the red zone does that. And last year we had to pivot very quickly to ration relief. We delivered food for close to half a million individuals and really had shifted everybody to remote working, et cetera. This year, I think the second wave internally has really hit us badly. We've lost two colleagues, about 200 odd staff either had COVID or an immediate family member had COVID. We did a quick sort of dipstick and about 90% of our teams asked for mental health support, which is huge because then, you know, we forget sometimes that the NGO sector has been on the front lines since last year whether it's delivering food, whether it's looking after, whether it's doing whatever they've really been. And there is a level of exhaustion. And the second wave brought it all home. You know, it's brought COVID into our homes. So, and that's really been tough. And I think we've really been thinking, you know, upping everybody's health insurance, buying life insurance for everyone. All kinds of investments have been made, you know, in mental health support, et cetera. So I think the impact on the organization has been sort of very deep. And now we're thinking very deeply about our succession planning. Because if you lose a leader of a district, what happens if you lose a state leader? So right now we're making sure that we have three people on the bench. You know, there was a time that about 80% of my senior leadership, we all had COVID at the same time. And so who holds it? You know, so I had like everything I was working on was in a Google sheet. and I had a sort of a, a, a shadow partner who was aware of everything I was working on. But these are all kinds of things that I think we had never really thought about. And we had to sort of build from scratch. 
you know, what I want to really also draw a picture is of our children and how I see and what I see happening with them. So last year during the lockdown, I was in a village outside of Mumbai and I was there for almost the entire year. We were living in the village. And so I started teaching a group of Adivasi kids. My, and my village is really small. This was like some 300 households. And so it's a very tiny village. It has about a dozen families that are tribal, that are extremely poor in that village. Um, because of the rains, there was no place where I could go and teach. So one of the ladies said, you can teach at my home. So I sat in uh, Kashi's home and I would teach all the children there. You know, all of my children, I could just see uh, no schools, nothing. They were either just playing, you know, climbing trees, running around. And the only class or the only educational experience they were having was when we sat down every day for a few hours in Kashi's home inside her inside our hut. And then after the lockdown, you know, about December, January, I came back to Mumbai and back to visit them a couple of weeks ago. And one of my boys, Nitin, nobody has heard from him. He's an 11-year-old boy. He's a really good boy. He makes all his paintings of himself, you know, with his tikka, and he sees himself as a really good child. So he always has a stiff and he's always neat in his paintings. He's very obedient. He focuses in the classroom. He digs his eyes onto you in a way that he just wants to absorb everything that you might be teaching him. And this boy has not been seen because he went with some relatives into the forest to cut wood, make coal, sell coal. And now for weeks on end, he's not back. His mother is not there anymore. The hut was empty because somebody told me that a contractor had taken her to Bangalore to work on a construction site. And I think a year of COVID is really going to put our kids back in a big way. Nitin, who was in school, is now lost to child labor. I don't know where he is, when he will be back, and whether when he comes back having worked for two years in a coal mine, how is he going to react to being back in the regimented environment of a school where we will expect him to pretend everything is okay and let's just do A for apple and B for boy? You know, Suman, she's gone. His mother is gone. She's, you know, you don't know. Bangalore, is she going to make it back to this little village back in Maharashtra from Bangalore? I don't know. But I see this over and over and over again in so many households. I have one of my children, Varsha. It took me almost four months before I met a family member of hers. I always saw her alone playing outside. And her, her you know, hut, the door would be locked because the family was just out trying to make a living, working on fields, doing daily wage labor. The child was, so just think about it, like child protection issues, the vulnerabilities that our children have, and what is it that we're preparing for when they come back into school? How will we find children like Nitin? What are we doing today to figure out that we can track all these kids down? What is our plan for that? We've had states where thousands of teachers have died. What is our plan for replacing those teachers? What is our plan for building back better? How is it that when they come back into the school, the school is at least relevant to what they have gone through? So I think COVID, the impact and the scarring of COVID we're going to see for years to come. No, I mean, I think, and I'm sure our story is similar to Educate Girls and other groups across the country where, like you said, the, the first year it was around having to be indoors, of course, being privileged to still have a job and, you know, get a salary, but not seeing the outside world and really focusing on our own COVID tracker of, you know, infected, not infected. And over the first 
12 months, I think we had maybe about 20 people total. So about 20% of our staff total over cumulatively over a 12 month period were infected with COVID and, and thank God all survived. I think what we're seeing now, and, and again, we have access to you know, medical support and, and everything else, but what we're seeing now, it's, it is having loved ones die. And that does not relieve itself in a day or a week or even years. Father passed away three years ago, and I still have times uh, where, you know, it's hard to deal with. And, and so for a child or anyone, for that matter, to lose family members, especially in a stage where there is a level of accountability which the system just did not provide, a level of support. I mean, our healthcare system buckled. And so from an educate girls perspective, when do you think schools will even start again? And for those were not maybe as lucky as your children or my children, what did they do if they didn't have a device? Like what was virtual learning for them uh, in the last year or even going forward if schools don't open? As always, I think, you know, with everything, our children will always pay the price. So whether it's environmental issues, whether it's COVID, they're the ones who are going to pay the biggest price of this. And I think the more vulnerable the child, the deeper the price that, that will be extracted. So in terms of the school year, I think the best case scenario is that we have two academic years that might be impacted. The more realistic scenario is that we might have three academic years being impacted. And, and what I mean by that is that, you know, if schools go into this sort of open, stop, open, stop, I'm counting it as a year, an academic year that has been impacted, even if two or three months of an academic year are hit that way. So realistically, let's say three academic years. You know, already we're seeing big pressure around child marriage, around child labor, and especially with loss of livelihoods and with falling incomes. And again, the areas that we work in, and like I said, you know, we're working in those 5% of the villages that have the toughest problems. Digital is really not the solution because barely, you know, 11% have a smartphone access where we work. So majority of the kids have no device. Majority of the girls, even if there was a device, even if there was a, a basic phone in the house, they're not going to get their hands on it. So I don't think virtual is going to work for a majority of our children. And so what we pivoted to last year was wherever the lockdown, et cetera, permitting, we were running neighborhood camps, 10 kids, 15 kids, really bringing you know, three-week camps to the children themselves. And last year, that worked out really well for us. And we served about a quarter of a million children through these camps. And, and so just to be clear, in all likelihood, kids are not going to be educated for three years because schools will not open completely. These kids also don't have access to e-learning platforms. The 11% that has access to digital my sense is uh, most of these populations will have at least two to three kids, uh, which means access is not each child has their own device, but the family has one device. Is that, is that correct, Savina? Absolutely, absolutely. And so what you're telling us is this is not a three-month get a vaccine and it's over. No, I'm not. And actually what I'm, what I'm cautioning against is that even when they do open, it is not going to be business as usual. Because A, many of the migrants have come back, right? And we've heard this from villages in Rajasthan. Even during the first wave, we heard this, that when the migrants came back, they're like, there's such a big difference between kids who went to school in, let's say, Mumbai or some urban area and kids in the village. 
So the complexity in the classroom increases, right? You've got kids who are coming in from different areas now who may be at very different levels. You may have kids who've lost both their parents. Or you've got kids, uh, you know, that's a whole other piece. I think the complexity that we will be dealing with of kids who may have had exposure to ed tech or some kind of virtual learning and then kids who won't. So even just imagine within the school and the classroom, how much complexity will increase from a psychosocial perspective, from this sort of inequality of who had, uh, you know, computer and who didn't, who was a migrant who went to an urban school earlier, who, who, you know, and who had nothing at all throughout these two years. And how will our teachers cope with that? And, and we already had a teacher shortage. And if we come out of the pandemic, even with worse numbers around teachers, how are we going to deal with the burden on them is going to be extreme. And our content, are we building a thick layer of uh, social and emotional support for the children based on our content? Or are we just saying, let's just keep it a transactional, you know, reading, writing. Our children will need much more. I think the pandemic is also showing that we've become so narrow in scoping what education means versus a holistic education, right? Our assessment system is broken. Are we thinking about how we can fix that right now? These are some of the bigger questions that really need to be thought through. And let's not say that, oh, in three months, it's going to be business as usual because it isn't. And given clearly that is also extremely critical because if a child is forced into labor or child marriage or trafficked, education is not even clearly not the, I mean, you need to protect the child from, from their rights and then education is secondary or give them food and then they can be educated, et cetera. I, I guess in hearing you and thinking about many of the CSR funders who are very keen on quick solutions and educational outcomes and things that to not just, you know, your example of it takes three years to achieve 160% of your targets, but even with our own children, we've seen it's only after a certain number of years that they're able to pick up because it's the repeat learning. It's, it's everything. It's the foundation and the fundamentals that don't are not taught in year one. They continue to be iterative on that. And, and so what is your comments, I guess, to the educational donors out there what should be their metrics going forward and how can they be more supportive in these times? Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, we've had a lot of donors come back and say, oh, you know what, right now the schools are closed, so we'll just see you whenever the schools open. And can, so again, just repeat that. And does that mean they're saying you don't even, you can't pay your staff? Yeah, so maybe we'll just come back to you when, when schools open. So if schools are shut, what are we really going to do? Versus what we're doing on the ground is A, we're doing ration relief because we know that our families are hungry. So we're making sure that A, they have food on the table for our children. Um, we're making sure that they're connected to social protection schemes wherever possible. So whatever they don't have an Aadhaar or a ration card, we're saying, listen, this is how you get it. We'll help you get vaccinated. We'll help you connect you to healthcare resources. All of this. And then we will stay in touch with your child because we know if we don't do all of this, like exactly as you said, the child will not be there next year when schools open. The child will have either been trafficked, the child would have already been married off, or the child would have already been in some coal mine working. But to say <laughs> that we'll come back to you when schools open, because right now there's nothing to do, uh, you know, that's what we hear. Are you able to have some of these conversations with donors to say, look, even though times are tough, or let me flip that, because times are tough, we need to do more, not less. And if so, what are donors saying? So I have to say, so on one hand, we're sort of hearing this, saying, we'll come back to you. 
you know, you don't need us anymore. We'll see when schools open. On the other hand, I have to say, we've also been incredible to have some fantastic donors. We've had donors who've actually proactively called us saying the second wave's happening. What are you guys doing? How can we support? And even the simplest thing, but they mean so much to us. The donors who've called and said, listen, forget about all this reporting and all the rest of it. If you want, just send me a two-line email that you guys are doing fine and whatever you're doing. But don't think that these quarterly reports and all the bureaucracy of what this is, that in this time we're in the, where while we're in the middle of the storm and everybody's just surviving the storm, forget about those pieces. And it really, it almost like made me cry because I was like, oh my God, that is so thoughtful. Because I had one person left in my communications. I had one person, everybody else was down sick. And just to hear that much from a donor to saying, listen, don't worry about the report this quarter was like, oh my God, thank God, I can, I can tell my team to rest another week. So on some level, I think we've really seen an enormous outpouring of humanity from our donors who've really sort of stepped up and said, you know, we, we put out a, an appeal for ration and raising money for that. And I think we were kind of overwhelmed at how many people just sort of called us and said, you know what, the money's in the bank, go check your bank account. So absolutely, there's a whole group of donors who have just been so proactive and they trust us. And again, you know, maybe this comes back to with the giving circle, with that research report that, that we did, right? With, with Dasra in 2009, the donors that came on board are still funding educators. And that long-term relationship is what builds trust. There is no trust if you're just funding for a year and you know, doing some innovative project and one activity and, then, and, and pulling out. You know, it's all about the money, how, how, what kind of donors you're working with and, and how you're thinking about your fundraising and you know, the, the sort of spirit behind it. It is shocking that individuals who have been successful and earned large amounts of capital think in three to five year terms when solutions for our own children and communities are lifelong. <laughs> we always need healthcare. There's never a time where we can say, I don't need healthcare anymore. Yet when it comes to giving money to NGOs or communities, we always think of it as, like you said, one year chunks or three year chunks or maybe max five year chunks. And I think that needs to change. The whole sector, honestly, and you know, you've been also very vocal about this, has flipped on its head to say, well, what does a donor want? And then accordingly, let's all run after, okay, how do NGOs then, then change things? Where in any investment on the for-profit side is, what does your consumer want? And then you figure out after that, whatever it takes to, to meet the needs of your consumer. In this case, the consumer, unfortunately, is the donor and not necessarily the end beneficiary with many donors. Again, many are fantastic, uh, but I think that's hopefully a shift. What other fallacies, I guess, do you feel, and I know there are many, but like what really upsets you when you think about the NGO sector and this donor power dynamic? I think we all have to realize that we get the world we pay for. So for example, today in the world, about 7.5 trillion is spent by the public sector. About 14 odd trillion US dollars is in the private sector. And the NGO sector is 320 billion. So look at the size of the social sector versus these two, right? And the private sector is about profit and they want to sell you more burgers and whatever and ruin the planet, <laughs> whatever else. The government is, again, you know, public sector provides a lot of goods, but it's also kind of weighing things like fighter jets versus education, like you know, where the money goes. 
the social sector is the only one that is focused on goals that we aspire as a human race of equality of peace of justice and we spent 320 billion on that versus the other two which are seven and a half and 14 trillion so really based on where we spend our money is what we get and we get a world full of poverty we get a world full of you know environmental degradation and a climate crisis because that is how the money is moving so that's my pet peeve and then we you know we need bigger gifts because our problems are just so much harder to solve right versus the for profit or or anything it is the social sector problems when we talk about which are the hardest problems and the problems that are most aspirational for humanity we shortchange we 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 throw peanuts at it i'm not even going to say under invest we're barely investing in it and that too with so many strings attached with so much bureaucracy from a reporting and whatnot you know kind of perspective and then we want to be really bold and innovative with peanuts so fundamentally that needs to change the second piece i think that really gets to me is within that as well we're funding a race but we expect a relay all this and it always strikes a chord with me um they will i get so annoyed every conference is about collaboration all the donors are pushing you for collaboration however the way they fund is structured as a race right but for all of a holistic development of a child you need to be funding relays but you don't find the relay. Instead, you say, oh, let's collaborate, you know? And it's just a, such a false narrative because the power dynamics are such that you will never get through. And I actually, I also feel that perhaps collaboration is not something what we need to aspire to. You know, it's like all the blind men and the elephant, you know, one is holding one leg and others holding another leg. We're kind of like that in the social sector. And the collaboration conversation is a little bit like saying, oh, you two guys who are holding the legs of the elephant, just like talk to each other and try and move the legs in the same direction. What we need is convergence. We need to at least together be able to see the whole elephant. Can we, from a funding lens, start to see that kind of a convergence? So instead of pushing collaboration onto NGOs, I think donors really need to converge and donors really need to follow this whole piece of collaboration and set up their money in a way that they're acing a relay. Right? So that's again the kind of like my my sort of pet peeve around the structural dynamics of the NGO and the development sector in some ways. I think the other thing in some ways and um, is this sort of increased corporatization of the NGO sector. And there's this push as if, you know, the only thing we can learn is from the corporate sector. And I kind of went along with it and I thought, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe for scale, you really need to, to understand how the corporate sector works, maybe because they've done scale, et cetera. But more and more, you know, they will, this is making me deeply uncomfortable. And I'll give you a couple of examples of why it makes me kind of uncomfortable. I think the more sort of corporate lens we apply, the more transactional we're becoming on the results we want to see versus getting divorced more and more from the core issues of social justice. And now nobody wants to touch social justice. So, and I think, I think that is really definitely being driven a lot by where the money is coming and how the money is coming and the nature of that money. The second thing that I think also makes me uncomfortable from that corporate lens is how we are looking at talent. And I have a real problem with this, right? 
And so I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. When I was launching the Development Impact Bond, the, the big question was who should lead this bond, right? It has never been done in the world. It had never been done in education. There was no template for it. And I remember all the donors, all the board members, everybody was like, Are, there's this like ex McKinsey person you should look at. Are, there is this Harvard person you should look at. Are, that one, like, you know, but their, their view of talent is Harvard, Yale, Princeton, some foreign university. Their idea of talent is, you know, uh, McKinsey, a consulting world or, you know, coming from the corporate world. And I had such a fight. I had a massive fight because I wanted Vikram Solanki, who was one of my initial team members. His family is still farming in Rajasthan. There is no way you're going to get a PowerPoint from Vikram. There is no way you're going to get fancy English from Vikram. But he knows. He knows what needs to be done. He knows the community. He knows he's that. And he's deeply, deeply, deeply inspirational leader who at his heart, you know, his lived experience, he understands what this means and he understands what it means to take people along on this journey and deliver this. And I credit the entire success of the development impact bond to Vikram and his team. Because we just got out of the way. We were like, Are Vikram hai, to because he knows. But it was such a fight. And this becomes again and again and again at any senior leadership level, any kind of decisions you make, this constant gyan that is coming at you is this view of talent. And, and I have a real problem with it. It makes me very uncomfortable because I think the sector also has a major diversity issue because of that. This further separation from the justice of who you're working for and where you're coming from. So anyway, I'll stop there. But yeah, those are, those are some of my pet peeves and, and things that make me uncomfortable and, and make me deeply uncomfortable. Couldn't agree with you more. And again, we've spoken about many of these, if not all of them, multiple times over the years. And I think, I think all of us just realize the need to go back to our social justice roots, like you said. Justice is not a bad word. Rights is not a bad word and looking after our communities, but being led by them, not the other way around, I think is, is really, really important and something that I think as a sector, we need to remind ourselves more of. One of the things we like to do in these interviews, uh, Safina, is to have one of my colleagues come and ask a question. And so with that, going to have Priyansha ask you a question. Easy one, though. Thank you, Deval. It's super easy. In the beginning, when you were talking about why you started Educate Girls Rather, it was genuinely very inspiring. I did not know that story. I've been thinking since when you started in 2007 and now in 2021, so much has changed. The entire uh, cultural system, everything has undergone a lot of change. So what are some challenges that you had to face back then that somebody like me who would just start maybe this year, for example, would not have to? And also, if you could tell us some challenges that we would face, but that you didn't have to. Okay. I'll, I'll try and tackle the first one, uh, right? Like, so some of the challenges I think at that time when I first started was trying to convince people, at least the donor community and the overall community, about the importance of girls' education. I think anybody starting off right now would probably have an easier job of it because I think the case over the years has really been made and it is now one of the sort of pillars that people recognize are essential for social justice and, uh, and gender justice. So I think that's kind of an easier piece. Your second is, what is a challenge that I may not have faced, but that you're going to be facing? Yes. <laughs> so 
you know, I started this and I've never been able to get a job anywhere, right? So I, was a, I, I just like, I had to run my own organization because nobody would give me a job. And one of the things that I see now, the way Educate Girls hires and like all the steps and everything, like I feel like if I went back to ask for a job, they'd never hire me. Like I'd never be able to do a writing sample. I'd never be able to do a lot of those things. So I think definitely, I mean, when I started out, People like Deval and people like Neera were a lot more trusting of what could be delivered. I see now like it's just, you have to be like overqualified for highly underpaid jobs. <laughs> it's just the development sector is getting to be, and again, I, going back to this Deval, it's this corporatization of, of how we're doing hiring and how we think about talent and what hoops they have to jump through. I think it's, it's really tough. I hired my first fundraising person who had never done fundraising and that was fine. But now, like, you know, <laughs> I would probably never be able to pass that kind of a candidate through my, through my board. Uh, people are less inclined to punt on other people, like, you know, see talent and just be like, okay, let's just get on with it. So I, I have to say, Priyansha, I don't know if that answers your question or if you'd like me to take another crack at no, it. No, it does. It definitely does. It's also a little scary, but thank you for telling us. So, so Safina... You have won lots of accolades, Audacious Prize, Skull Prize, Mulago Fellow, been funded, I think, by the Queen of Qatar, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> which is, that's the coolest, by the way. And yet, like you said, there's just so many challenges in front of us, perhaps more now than ever before. What still keeps you hopeful? What allows you to still do what you do? Besides, of course, you know, your phenomenal team, what keeps you going? I think what keeps me going is the mission and the purpose. And I think it inspires all of us, whether it's the team, whether it's the thousands and thousands of team balikas who join us, whether it's the board, whether it is, you know, any, anybody and everybody, we're all just sort of motivated by the purpose. And I, and I think that still drives us and that still really motivates us in a way that hasn't changed at all in the last uh, sort of 15 years. Thank you, Safina. This has been really, really nice. I really appreciate your time. Uh, we were lucky to have your worst half introduce this entire podcast crazy idea in March. And, and it's really nice to have your voice on this as well. If you have anything else you think we should have covered, but we didn't, please let me know. Or you can add one or two more pet peeves. That would be nice. <laughs> No, I think I'll, I think I'll keep that for maybe uh, season two, Deval. Yes, yes, yes. Can we, can we talk about the pet peeve of donors wanting board seats? Oh my God. <laughs> that will be episode two, episode two, episode two. <laughs> Thanks, Safina. Have another drink now. Have more coffee, okay? <laughs> yes, okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Educate Girls and support their excellent work, go to educategirls.ngo, or you can go to our website, thusra.org forward slash NCB. We've got show notes, links, and much more about all of our guests. Until next time, stay safe. No Cost Extension is produced by Vaca Media.